Hello and welcome everybody to Kickback, your global anti-corruption podcast. Enjoy today's episode of this joint production of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. If you like what we do, please leave us a rating on iTunes and Stitcher. Thanks for joining the latest episode of our podcast. This is Matthew Stevenson. My guest today probably needs no introduction to the anti-corruption community. I'm uh, speaking today with Yale professor Susan Rose Ackerman, the uh, Henry Luce Professor of Law and Professor of Political Science at Yale University, and one of the country, if not the world's leading experts on corruption, anti-corruption. So Susan, thank you very much for joining us and taking some time to talk to us today. Thank you for inviting me. So I think the the place I want to start is uh, with your own background on this topic, because, of course, now the topic of corruption is uh, reasonably popular among economists, political scientists, and others. But you started working on this topic, I think, over 40 years ago, if I'm not wrong, when there was, you know, there was some work on the topic among some political scientists, uh, maybe some some, a little bit in sociology, uh, but not very much, certainly in economics and and even in other disciplines. It, it wasn't a sort of central topic. So, so what brought you to this subject? What got you interested in corruption as a subject of academic study? Um, I guess I'd always been interested in in the making of public policy and in the overlap between economics and political science. But the way I actually got started was I was teaching a course in urban economics, um, and I was teaching about federal housing programs. And um, that was a time when there was quite a lot of corruption in the administration of a particular federal housing program that provided home ownership to very low-income people. But recognizing their low income, they were told they would never have to pay more than something like 25% of their of their income uh, for rent. So they didn't care how much the house cost because uh, the uh, their financial um, obligations were were capped. Um, and then people who had houses that they wanted to sell to the federal government um, wanted to get a, a very nice high appraisal of these houses so that they could get high returns. Um, so one of the things that happened was that people were uh, corrupting the, the FHA, the Federal Housing Administration, inspectors or assessors, to say that the house was worth more than it was. And this was quite a big scandal. And, of course, one of the problems was that the people who were the beneficiaries had no incentive at all to notice that the house had been valued at some at, at some higher level. So that made me think, look, you know, a little basic economics at the time when you wrote the statute might have suggested that there was a problem there that needed to be thought about in, in, in some ways, at least to build in some more uh, monitoring of what was of, of what was going on. And so that got me started in terms of an interest in, in, uh, in, in corruption. And um, I just began to see other uh, other situations where uh, a background in economics was going to be helpful in terms of at least uh, uh, beginning to understand what was uh, what, what was going on. So my my first article was not actually on on housing programs, but it was on uh, corruption, particularly in in procurement, another obvious area where some basic economics will help in in terms of thinking about where the where the incentives for corruption might arise. 
Hmm. So you're you're starting this topic. It's such an international topic, and so much of your work has this global dimension. But your own start was very much uh, uh, it grew out of an interest in domestic U.S. corruption issues. That 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 seems that's right. And um, but of course, when once you start being interested in the topic, uh, you see it arising or being written about in a lot of different uh, places. Um, you're right, there wasn't a lot of systematic social science work on the topic, but there certainly was plenty of uh, media coverage of scandals all around the world. So the book that I published in 1978 was full of footnotes. In fact, some people said that their favorite part of the book was the footnotes, because mm-hmm. it was um, all kinds of examples drawn from different different places, um, where, of course, the kind of cultural, political, economic contexts are very different in these different places, but some of the underlying fundamental incentives for payoffs were um, show up in, uh, in, in places which are other, otherwise might seem to be quite different. Yeah, talk a little bit about that. So I'm interested, once you, you had your roots in corruption issues that you were seeing in the United States, but then when you start to broaden your focus and see similar issues all around the world, uh, were there particular countries or regions that you were particularly drawn to initially as you started to expand the focus of your research beyond the United States, or was it always pretty global and, and theoretical right from the get-go? Well, at, at that point, um, it was more um, drawing on the on examples from around the world to illustrate sort of broader conceptual points that I wanted to make. Um, later on, I think I got more interested in basically middle-income countries, mm-hmm. um, and, and that meant particularly Latin America and Eastern Europe at the mm-hmm. time after 89, when the transition was beginning to occur. However, there was something in the middle, before that happened, I um, collaborated with a very distinguished comparative uh, economist named Michael Montius, who had written a very important book on Poland and was very interested in the sort of the problems of the way the economic system worked um, in the countries that uh, were at that point in the in the socialist bloc. And that was, for me, a kind of a weird experience, because I was used to thinking of my work as at least potentially having some kind of policy relevance to somebody. You know, not that it necessarily actually did, but that I could imagine myself speaking to the government of the United States or of New York City or something about how they might uh, change their policies. But I didn't really think that, you know, Brezhnev was going to, like, read our article and get some ideas. So it was a, that was a, a kind, of, kind of first time I really did something that that had a clear uh, international, or not international exactly, but comparative mm-hmm. um, uh, focus. And, of course, those economic systems were full of places where all kinds of rigidities and uh, and shortages were so it was they were full of places where uh, corruption would be um you know a way to get around those the, the, the problems hmm, fascinating um so so you mentioned that your your fir- your book your first really major work i know there was an article beforehand but that that very influential book was published uh, at this point, 40-plus years ago. So you've been working in this field for, for a while. Um, over the course of that time, uh, what would you describe as the most significant developments or advances in the field? When you look back over 40 years, not only of your own work, but this mm-hmm. whole field uh, that, that you really helped spawn, at least in, in economics, yeah. uh, what do you think are the most significant changes, advances, developments? So sort of what, have we, what have we really learned uh, building on y- y- your 
early work and the work of others, if you if you want to characterize the broad sweep well, of the field in that period? Well, I wrote that book in 78. It was not immediately influential because uh, there wasn't a lot of other work. There was a little bit, but not too much. Where the, the, the field really took off was after 89. Mm-hmm. So after um, the fall of the Soviet Union, and the beginning of the international organizations to take this on as something that they were willing to consider. Um, and then there were a few efforts. My own work didn't have any statistical analysis in it. It was a conceptual book that I was hoping, you know, would lead to people trying to, to do something empirical, but that was not what I was doing myself. Later on, um, other people began to do um, empirical work, which started out, some of it at least, started out as using the cross-country indices that were at that time coming from some of the organizations that advised companies about where how risky it would be to invest in different in different countries. Not very fine-grained uh, mm-hmm. data, but something that at least gives you some sense of the range of of experiences that you might expect going into it. I've always been more interested, I'm an old microeconomist and industrial organization economist, so I've been always been more interested in trying to understand how particular sectors work uh, and how corruption can arise in particular sectors. And I think once the research began to do that, that it was going to have more concrete uh, policy uh, I- implications. The cross-country research, once the Transparency International Index was sort of went public, did play a role in putting the issue on the policy agenda, not so much on the scholarly agenda, but on the policy agenda, in a way that I found really quite quite interesting and surprising. But to proceed from that, um, it was necessary for uh, people to really figure out much more Sort of microeconomic things that they could that they could do, which has come you know in more in more in more recent years. Sometimes that's um, on the ground um, experimental or quasi-experimental work. I think of Ben Olkin's work in Indonesia. Uh, sometimes it's cleverness in finding data sets that indirectly let you uh, infer corruption. Uh, Ray Fisman, I think, has been particularly talented at, at, at doing that, that, um, that, that give you some insight into the way in which uh, corruption is actually, is actually working. Yeah, so uh, it's interesting to hear you talk about the development of the field. Your early work was very much, as you said, informed by microeconomic theory, uh, enriched by a, a set of examples. But the, a lot of the more recent work has been, uh, I- at least in economics, in the vein of uh, quantitative empirical analysis. So there are the cross-country okay. studies... Uh, using things like the Corruption Perceptions Index scores or the Worldwide Governance Indicators that you mentioned. And then there's this new, newer wave of experimental work or, or, or more micro sort of forensic economics work. Um, my own reading on the field, and you can tell me if I'm wrong about this, is that there has not been as much recently uh, at the level of uh, theory, that the that the corruption scholarship for the last you know 10 to 20 years has been uh, heavily empirical. Uh, mm-hmm. do, do you have a sense that this is because basically we've we've worked out most of the the theory, at least the economic theory that that we need to, or or do you think that there's a need for more people to be doing more conceptual or theoretical work in the area? I think there's a need for people to be doing more theory that is grounded in real problems. Right. So, I mean, this is inherently a a topic that is overlaps with very serious policy concerns around the world, um, but um, I worry that too much emphasis on just 
certain kinds of very very micro research can kind of lose the the um, sort of conceptual framework within which this is going on. So I would actually like to see more work that is informed by a kind of applied theory at the same time as it tries to it tries to gather data in with that with some kind of a of a theoretical framework um, uh, behind it. Exactly what that should be, I don't, but it, it was is an open is an open question. But but um, you know, I think you know, for example, in the contracting area, part of the problem is that the micro stuff, the experimental stuff, much of which is very interesting. I don't mean to be denigrating. I think it's great, very interesting, but it can only look at certain kinds of problems. It can only look at problems that uh, or a lot of. People in a particular area are engaged in, in interacting with the state in some particular way. Um, so it, it will provide some insights into what gets called petty corruption, although, of course, it's not petty. It just means that it's corruption that is uh, influencing or affecting the way in which people live their day-to-day lives. But the other part of corruption has to do with more massive contracting schemes, privatizations, concessions, things where each country is only going to do a few of them um, every year. And that we need to have somewhat better understanding of how to uh, develop government contracting systems and, and systems for the sale of public assets or the letting of, of, of concessions um, that are less um, subject to uh, to corruption. And um, I think that's one important area where, where theory can help. There's a, there's a range of people who work do provide theoretical work on government contracting. And most of those people have not been interested in corruption, and it would be, I think, very productive interface to have some of those people interact with those of us who are interested in corruption to try to sort of think through both theoretical ways of managing that and um, an empirical uh, an, an empirical test. So that's really interesting, and let me ask you um, to extend on that a little bit. So I think most people in our listening audience are people who are mainly focused on corruption, but what are some of the other related fields, related subjects of study that you think that anti-corruption scholars or practitioners should be more engaged with? So you just mentioned government contracting. There's a whole group of people working on government contracting that you know, the corruption people are not necessarily talking about. Are there other fields or subfields like that where you feel like there's a very close relationship to corruption, but maybe the two subdisciplines really haven't been engaged as much as they should? I would say any trust. So one of the things that happened, I've got a couple of chapters by other people in one of my edited books about the relationship between cartels and corruption. So uh, you may have a, a cartel which is able to maintain itself. I mean, the usual story in economics is there's you form a cartel, it's risky. People always have an incentive to kind of peel off. But if you, if the cartel can also corrupt the um, people in the public sector who are either supposed to be um, working over them at antitrust or linked back again to the contracting regulatory side of stuff, the, that can be an enforcement mechanism to, um, to get the, to maintain the cartel over time. And it's also an important related thing. Is suppose you, the state prosecutes a, a public official for corruption, um, there may still be a cartel out there, right? So that there's there's this kind of overlap between corruption as a facilitator of some underlying problem. In this case, um, uh, a bidding ring or a, or a, a or a cartel in, in 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 one kind of market. So that would be one one area that I think would be would be important. 
And of course, the obvious areas that have to do with, you know, with, with the way in which uh, regulations are carried out and the way in which corruption can undermine the, to at least think about the possibility of corruption when you design a system. That's back to my old urban economics story, uh, would be, it would be useful. Great. So let me, um, you talked a little bit before we've been talking a little bit about the usefulness of theory and economic theory as a, a lens or a framework for understanding or thinking about corruption. So again, you were one of the, the pioneers of the use of that framework. As you know, uh, that particular perspective on, on uh, corruption is not uncontroversial. It has its detractors. And so I want to give you an opportunity to maybe say a little bit about what some of the critiques of uh, the economic perspective on corruption might be. So so one of them, which was raised at a conference that you and I were uh, both able to attend in, in direct response to an opening keynote address that you gave, runs along the lines of the traditional microeconomic framework uh, for analyzing corruption is is insufficiently sensitive to or doesn't do enough to incorporate cultural factors, psychological factors, uh, those sorts of, call them non-rational or only semi-rational motivators of human behavior, which some people say are really mm -hmm. uh, deeply bound up with uh, corruption as a practice or a set of related uh, cultural practices. So I'm sure you're familiar with that uh, that line of argument, and I'm sure you have something to say about it. So I want to give you the opportunity okay. to say what you would have to say about that line of critique. Right. Um, I mean, first of all, uh, of course, people. I'm not an economic imperialist. Um, I think that people who study anthropology and sociology and psychology have something to bring to the table as part of the discussion about uh, what could explain which people end up being corrupt and which ones don't. The other, the deeper criticism, of course, is that people who um, evaluate certain certain activities. Uh, and call them corrupt may be sort of insensitive to the fact that the people who are engaging in these activities think they're perfectly fine. And of course, you do have to recognize that if, that if some society doesn't have any norms or rules against um, self-seeking behavior by people in power, uh, then it's not corruption for them. Right? And, and I, who are we to impose that norm on them? On the other side... Um, much of the literature that I've read in these in this area, and I by no means an expert, but I tried to read some of the work, particularly in Africa, about it, was that you talk when people are talked to about what it's like to live in a in an area where payoffs of one kind or another are are common, is that in general they don't think it's fine. They do it because they're caught in an institutional structure in which this is. The way in which they can function in their daily lives, but that uh, that people have have a recognition in most in many of the cases, obviously not all, but in many cases, that there is some kind of a set of behaviors for for public officials that um, that they believe are are desirable, and that that's not what they're seeing. Right. So it has to do one of part of the discussion about culture has to do with whether. Uh, the society recognizes the notion of role of people playing different roles in their lives, and that behavior which is appropriate or even rewarded and admired in one role may be seen as uh, unacceptable in in another role. So, your most cultures put some value on family and friendship and 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 love and doing things in a generous way to people who are connected with you, um, but that. Those 
forms of behavior which are very desirable in, the, in, in, in your role as family member and friend are operate against certain norms of behavior in your role as public official. And, and so that is, that's partly the question for the sociologists and the anthropologists is to look at societies and, and try to discover whether people can make those distinctions of, of different, what's appropriate in different roles. The second thing I think is that in cases in which people are, think that certain kinds of personal enrichment in your, in your position as a, as somebody in, with, with some kind of power, uh, is okay, one one thing that those of us coming in from sort of the outside, from the economics, political science point of view, can say, well, think about the um, the cost that these may be imposed, and maybe you want to accept it. But it's um, it's partly trying to, in other words, it's partly trying to not take sort of culture as somehow by definition something you have to an analyst in this area has to somehow defer to. You want to understand it and think about where, you know, on the margin changes can be uh, can be made, but not um, not necessarily um, take it as a as a, as a trump. Uh, it could be an explanatory variable, but that's a different point from whether it's it leads to a uh, what it leads to in terms of policy. Great. So let me ask you about a related. A critique of the framework that you bring to the problem of corruption. It's not exactly the same. So whereas the first one was more a general sort of external critique of, of, of economic thinking, this is one more of like an insider, almost nerdy, sometimes it even seems like terminological dispute. But you and a bunch of other people who started working in this vein frequently deployed what economists and other so social scientists would call a principal agent framework, thinking about corruption as a problem where uh, the the agent, which could be the bureaucrat or the politician or whomever, mm -hmm. has right. uh, maybe better information or the possibility to take action that can't be observed. And we think about this as a general, you know, we see these problems in other contexts as well, whether it's shareholders controlling managers or voters controlling elected politicians. So so that framework is has been widely deployed to try to uh, understand both uh, corruption as a problem and also potential responses to corruption. Uh, as you know, this uh, the use of the principal agent framework has also been subject to criticism, at least when applied to societies that may be characterized by what is sometimes called systemic or endemic mm -hmm. corruption, right? So the line of critique that I associate with people like Bu Rothstein at the Gothenburg, uh, Gothenburg University, but others as well, they say, well, uh, corruption isn't really a principal agent problem. There is no principle. Uh, it's not a problem of getting incentives right. It's what uh, they'll deploy. Uh, people who take this critique will deploy another uh, term also drawn from economics. It's a collective action problem where everyone would like to change their behavior, but they can't do it unilaterally. So, so again, I, obviously you're aware there's this line of uh, critique that suggests that the principal agent framework uh, deployed by many economists, you included to the problem of corruption, is inappropriate, at least in settings where you have systemic or endemic corruption. So again, I'm sure this is something you've thought about, so I'd love to hear what your response would be to that line of critique. Well, obviously, a principal, if, if there is not a, a principal who cares about corruption, you can't discuss the problem in terms of principal agent terms, right? I mean, it's, it is certainly correct, the critique, it's certainly correct that the principal agent model implies that there's a principal who doesn't like corruption. Now, of course, if, who is the principal? I mean, in an ordinary bureaucracy, 
we're talking about the sort of the top of the bureaucracy trying to control the behavior of the people farther down the farther down the bureaucracy. In a political system, it becomes a little more complicated because it's not just the three elected representatives; it's the people who are electing the, the, these elected representatives um, who are not who, who really have a collective action problem. Who, um, if they end up electing people who are happy to behave in a corrupt way in terms of looting the state in one in one way or another. So I accept the, the critique, not, I mean, not the strong critique that it's useless, but the moderate critique that says, okay, there's certain corruption problems that can be quite well characterized as principal agent problems. And those are worth studying. They're, they're a good, important part to worth studying. Where I part company with, with Lou Rothstein and some of the other people who are making this critique is that their own affirmative theory or, or normative position I find very hard to defend. So there are several people who kind of assert a, a particular normative view of what the state should be doing. In particular, it should be behaving impartially. And then, if, and then, and then, so they assert a normative view, which not everybody might agree with as the full story. It would be nice to be impartial, but I mean, that's not the whole, that's not a whole political philosophy, right? And then anything that deviates from that philosophy, from that normative philosophy, is described as corrupt. And that seems to me to be sort of shut off debate, to prejudge things that we ought to be having a debate about what the good society is. That's fine. That's what the field of political philosophy should be doing and what thoughtful political actors and citizens uh, 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 should be doing. But my problem with some of that work is that it takes the person's own view of what the good society is like and then defies anything that doesn't fit into that as corrupt. And and that seems to me to be a, to miss, sort of miss a stage in the discussion about what should, what should, what should count as, uh, as, as a good society. And then I wouldn't want to call everything that doesn't match that as necessarily uh, as necessarily corrupt. Yes, but this this seems like a, a classic difficulty with the field of corruption, which may be a problem, maybe not, just that it's an inherently difficult term to define, right? So you could define it in terms of if you define it in terms of violation of the law. Uh, then maybe it's a little bit more objective, though since both of us spend time in law schools, I think we would know it's maybe not as objective as non-lawyers would think. Uh, but then there's this whole problem of, well, if you legalize something, does that mean it's automatically non-corrupt? Whereas, as you were just saying, if you go in the opposite direction to find something as corrupt as if, if it deviates from some commitment to what a just society would look like, then that would seem both potentially subjective and and, and very very difficult to... Uh, define with any objectivity or, or consistency. I mean, in in your work, especially since so many scholars, especially young scholars, are drawn to these definitional issues, and, and paper after paper gets written about the definition of, of corruption, do you have a favorite kind of working definition of corruption? Do you think it's a worthwhile topic to engage in, or do you sort of feel like we kind of keep going around and around in circles, but we basically know what we're talking about and should stop? I think it's inevitably going to be contested. Everybody wants to use it for things they don't like, and that invites it being, since there's a lot of things people don't like, it invites it in respect to how the state operates in its relationship to the private sector or even within the private sector. So it kind of invites that sort of, uh, of debate. I, I have never found it particularly productive to spend a lot of time worrying about that. 
but but of course it's there is you're making some choices about what you what you want to what you want to study. I have been using the the definition that Transparency International uses for the misuse of of entrusted authority for you know for private gain um, and for or political gain and recognizing that that definition is not self-defining that each term in it needs to be talked about and discussed. What I tried to say in this little essay I did in a in a Daedalus, a recent issue of Daedalus that brought together a lot of us who work on the topic, um, is look, there's some things I think which are not controversial, at least in the topic of corruption, uh, basically bribery of one kind or another, and that there are a range of other other issues such as lobbying, campaign of campaign of financing, other certain other kinds of behavior, which certainly can be in particular cases, a problem, <laughs> but uh, that uh, that there's much more, many more gray areas, um, for example, something like lobbying and campaign finance, that we wouldn't want to call all of it, all intersections between private wealth and public power. Uh, I, I wouldn't at least want to put it all in the corruption uh, box. I mean, there's a, the big background topic is the relationship between private wealth and public power. I mean, that's the big, to- that's the general topic of which corruption and bribery and self-dealing are are a subset. So I don't I don't know how how productive it is to get too hung up on definitions, except to the extent that people that I want to push back against people using asserting a definition that commits the reader to something they might not always want to be committed to if they sort of think through what's what's implied. Great. So let me let me um, shift gears slightly to move from definitions to the the problem of of solutions. And I want to tie this to the emphasis in our conversation, your work on the problem of incentives. So I think it seems like one of the problems, maybe the most fundamental problem in reforming systems, institutions, and policies to deal with the corruption problem, is that the people who have the power to change systems are more often than not the people who benefit from the systems as they exist. And the people who have maybe the strongest interest in changing systems or policies are the ones who are marginalized, excluded, left out, don't have power. So the the, the question this obviously leads to is uh, what what do we know or what have we learned or what can we say about the conditions under which uh, the political incentives will be such that those who benefit from the existing system, uh, you know, the political and economic elites who, who have the power to change things will actually find it in their interest. So what have you learned uh, from your own study and from what you've read about how to create the right sort of political conditions where the people with the power to affect change on this issue will actually want to affect change on this issue? Yeah, sure. And of course, that ties back into what we were talking about before. About, exactly. Uh, you know, Rothstein and some other uh, other people who want us to focus very much on that. But all I, can, I mean, if you, there's some question of what does history tell us. We do have some examples of countries making a, a shift from being cities, from being quite corrupt to being uh, less corrupt. Uh, and how did that happen? So these are, in some sense, you know, his, a, historical anecdotes. But I think they do show some more general. Make some more general points. So the the so if you look at the U.S. and at the U.K., both of which, of course, continue to have corruption, but they went from quite high levels of corruption to somewhat less in the in, a, in the course of the 19th century. So what happened in the 
U.S., at least according to the historical work that I've read, well, two things we'll talk about the federal government and about urban areas. So the federal government, the story that the historians have told is, first of all, there was civil society organization. Right? There were the progressives. There were people who were upset by the level of corruption and who were agitating to try to reduce it. Had, it wasn't just corruption. They had strong norms of you know, the, a proper behavior uh, of, of public officials. They couldn't do it on their own. They needed allies. So who were their allies? Some of their allies were parts of the business community that were feeling as if they were being taxed too much, while other parts of the business community were not paying enough, or they were being taxed too much to have budgets be, be too high. So they joined together with the civil society people. And then secondly, there had to be some politicians who thought that they would benefit from being on the side of the of reform. And the historical story in the U.S. that was told was that the when we passed um, uh, civil service reform, which was, of course, not just about corruption, it was also about, about careers open to talents, about high, more higher qualified uh, uh, civil service, but it certainly did have an anti-corruption piece of it. Well, so the federal, the national, the national politicians who were in Congress, were felt like they were losing power uh, to the state politicians who were beginning to be able to hand out all these jobs and all kinds of good stuff. Right? And so the um, the federal politicians were being pressured by portions of the business community and by the progressives to do something about uh, about the spoils system in in federal employment. And um, and they were no longer gaining from it, um, so they became allies. And uh, there was one study of the uh, votes on this that showed that that was that that happened. Uh, um, similarly, there was something that happened in the UK in the early 19th century, where once again the the benefits of of, of in this case also handing out jobs, you know, to uh, the second and third sons of of relatively well-off uh, people became uh, a, a chore, a job, something you were criticized for rather than something that you were praised for because the number of jobs shrank, the size of the government shrank. And so you're now giving a job to one out of ten people who applied, and then the other nine are angry at you. So there's this compilation of both people who really care about trying to reform the state who are principled ideologues who have strong values for for good government, but they can, I think, almost never do it by themselves. Uh, they've got to find some way to ally with economic interests and with political interests. And um, at least the cases that I saw, that was that happened. Um, and then I suppose the second question, which I don't know the answer to, is how do you create the conditions, you know, for that to um, for that to happen? These are sort of artifacts of history, but. But it, but it does it does suggest the possibility of of an intersection between um, principled reformers and um, and the self interest of other parts of society. That's fascinating. One of the things that that's interesting about your answer is that, which, which is to me encouraging, is that I think not so long ago, when asked to think of anti corruption success stories from which we we could learn, uh, people would instinctively point to say Hong Kong and Singapore. Right. Uh, maybe one or two other places. And it's just a trend I've I've noticed, um, and maybe you've picked up on this earlier. It seems increasingly over the last just few years that people are starting to look more at the historical experience of the countries predominantly in what, for lack of a better term, we might call the wealthy West that, that went through this transition in the 19th, 20th century or earlier. I think that's 
Singapore and Hong Kong are somewhat problematic examples, I think. They're city-states, so they're, they're not like big, complicated countries. Uh, they're, they're British colonies. Uh, the Hong Kong, I mean, they're, 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 the anti-corruption things that were created while they were colonies. Um, and, and Singapore, which is always pointed to as a this positive example, partly through very high pay being given to public officials combined with very severe penalties, is that Singapore is a financial paradise. Singapore ranks very, very highly in the uh, on, on lists of countries where it's easy uh, to park your money if you're trying to find a place, you know, to to get your real gotten gains, you know, out of some other place and 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 have it merged into the into the international financial system. Right. So so I guess if you're if you're an anti-corruption reformer or someone who cares about those issues in a place like India or Ukraine or Mexico, for example, um, maybe we have more to learn. Maybe people like that have more to learn from what happened in the United States or the UK or France or Sweden or whatever 100, 150 years ago than what happened in Hong Kong or, or, or Singapore. Now, of course, you anticipated and kind of preempted the question that I was going to ask you, which is, what should reformers in places like Ukraine or India or or Mexico learn from the U.S. or U.K. experience? And it sounds like there we're we're still not quite sure. We know it can happen, but hard to tell if there if there are clear lessons. Well, I guess it's a mixture of a mixture of, of you know, this vague term political will. You know, somebody wanting to make a change and having enough political capital uh, and and public support to uh, to do it. And so that's the people. Who, Someone like Robert Rothberg, who really stressed leadership, that's the important thing. Well, yeah, leadership is necessary but not sufficient. <laughs> so you can be very excited about trying to make change and then not have very good ideas about what to do. So, and to figure out what to do is not, it's not going to be a single answer. You know, it's going to depend on where corruption is most serious in the polity that's, that is thinking about making, uh, making changes. I think we've got plenty of ideas about what to do in particular uh, 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 circumstances. But, you know, maybe some country has absolutely no problem with the police and lots of problems with, with uh, regulatory guys who issue uh, licenses to open businesses or something like that, or zoning violations. Great. Well, uh, we don't have that much more time because you've I, 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 already been very generous with your time. But if you don't mind, I just want to ask a couple of uh, final questions that, again, involve maybe stepping back and thinking over the over the course of your long and distinguished career working on this topic. And, and the first one is, are there any um, any issues or, or points where you feel like your own views have changed substantially from when you were working on this issue, you know, 40 years ago or 30 years ago? Any any places where you think, huh, I used to think the following things about corruption back when I started working on this, and now I think something quite different? Well, I think I'm more attuned to the uh, the issue of of sort of, I mean, state capture isn't quite the right word, but of, of corruption that is is systemic uh, in the sense that it that it permeates uh, almost all of the dealings between the state and the and the citizen and the state and and uh, and, and, and business and, and and recognizing that some of those I mean it's not macroeconomic it's macro political uh, uh, problems um, are are distinctive and. And can't be kind of pulled apart into a set of of particular problems in particular sectors. I still think to solve those, to you know, to deal with this, part of it has still got to be to know the notice the difference between uh, corruption and police forces and 
and and corruption in the purchase of of goods and services for the state. But the I, I, I I've certainly been trying to think a little more uh, carefully about the about um, systemic corruption of that type. Great. And I just want to ask, uh, to wrap up, this is either one question or two questions, depending on how you want to okay. answer it. But I'm interested in, especially when you started out, and there wasn't that much in the academic literature, at least the economics literature, uh, who were your influences? What did you read or what were you exposed to that you found extremely helpful? And then the thing that might be the same question or might be a different question is, what things might you recommend to our readers uh, that they read, or, or to our listeners, I should say, that they read or pay attention to that might not be in what we might think of as the conventional academic or scholarly literature on corruption, but maybe works of history, uh, maybe even novels? Uh, what's out there that you think uh, is really worth reading for a very distinctive perspective on the problem of corruption that maybe one wouldn't find if you were to just kind of read the policy reports and read the scholarly journals? Hmm, that's an interesting question. Um, of course, I can't necessarily remember what I was reading in <laughs> 1973, but um, I was certainly influenced by the early work in public choice. Uh, so this is theoretical stuff. Right? I mean, I was... I um, uh, worked through A.K. Sen's early early book on uh, you know with his um, one one chapter with no math and one chapter with math to try to learn about about uh, public choice. I've always been very interested in teaching basic cho- uh, basic courses uh, about um, the what it is that kind of systematic thinking about about choice, uh, political choice, how that can be understood or applied in in real applications, even though the theories themselves are very are, are very abstract, so I think that was that was certainly uh, a piece of where this uh, of where my initial interest came from. Uh, you know, trying to combine it with actually learning something about what was going on in different in, in different countries. I don't. I mean, I don't remember. I, mean, I, I certainly read George Washington Plunkett, you know, <laughs> and oh, and, and I read there's a a, a a wonderful sort of case study books about corruption that are that are scholarly studies, but they are they get you into the weeds of what's actually going on in in particular cases. Some of these in the in the U.S. There's a great um, uh, there's a great study of, of of Reading, Pennsylvania, which is defined as you know town X. And I think those are helpful. I've always, at least for me, it's either if you're going to think generally about something, it's usually a good idea to kind of, for me at least, to get into the weeds of some particular things. But um, I don't have a good list for you, I'm afraid, at this point, but that's a sort of more generic suggestion. No, that's terrific, and that's extremely helpful. Again, thank you for joining us today on uh, today's episode of our podcast. Uh, you know, I should just say personally, your work has been very influential for me, and I'm sure I'm not alone. I think there's a, not only a whole, I was about to say a whole generation of social scientists. I think <laughs> at this point it's two whole generations of social scientists who have been very much influenced by your work. So thank you for very much for sharing your time okay, and well, your thank insights. You, thank you for including me, and good luck on getting, having some other good interviews going forward. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Good. Bye-bye.